And if you have your Bibles with you today, turn to the Old Testament, to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, and chapter thirteen. Second Chronicles, chapter thirteen. I'll give you a minute to find that. But Second Chronicles comes after First and Second Kings which comes after First and Second Samuel. So if that's any help, those are some pretty uh, big books in the Old Testament. Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles. Second Chronicles, chapter 13. And I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of Abijah. Now, my guess is you've probably never heard of Abijah. I want to introduce him to you. He is a descendant of David. Uh, I think he's a great-grandson of David and a grandson of Solomon. His name, uh, Abiyah, in, in the Hebrew, Abba means father. And Yah is an abbreviated form of Yahweh, which is a name for God in the Old Testament. So the father... Um, uh, the, the God is my father, I think is the way you would understand that. Now, why is that important? Why is that significant? Well, when God made a covenant with David, his great-grandfather, in 2 Samuel 7, God promised David for the first time that he would be, that David would have a son who would be a son of God. That, and God said, David, your son, I'm going to be his father. The, and he will be a king. In fact, the descendants that you have that rule on the throne in Israel, I'm going to adopt them as my sons. So that the son of David is also the son of God. And the king of Israel and the, the, uh, the king in Judah that kingdom is also the kingdom of God. Now that's significant because here's a, a, a son of the father. And I'm guessing that the father there, by, that, by the father, he means God the father. And so he is being attacked by Jeroboam. And at this stage, uh, the kingdom has divided into northern and southern sections. Um, give me that map if, uh, of the divided kingdom. This is around 900 B.C. And uh, Israel in the, is generally capital, the capital is at Samaria. And in Judah, the capital is at Jerusalem. And the northern section, there's about ten tribes that went with what's called Israel. And they divided because God brought chastisement because of Solomon, his grandfather's sins. He married a thousand wives, well, 700 technically, and had 300 concubines. So he, he, it's a colorful history. But uh, the division went, ten tribes went north, and Judah and Benjamin basically stayed and comprised the tribe of Judah. Well, Abijah is over Judah, and Jeroboam is over the northern section, which is Israel. 
Now they come together and have a war. Look at verse 3, 2 Chronicles 13, verse 3. Abijah went out to battle, having an army of valiant men of war, 400,000 chosen men. But Jeroboam, that's the king in the north, Jeroboam drew up his, and he had 800,000 chosen warriors. That's two to one. That's, uh, that's called the odds being against you. Jeroboam is 800,000 to 400,000. And what does Abijah do with this numerous number of enemies stacked against him? Well, he has a strategy, a military strategy, that I don't think you'll find anywhere in the world. He preaches a sermon. <laughs> this, what Abijah does is stand up, verse 4, on a hill and preach a sermon. And the sermon is from verses 4 through 12. And basically what I want to do this morning is give you Abijah's sermon. I, I'm, le- I'm somebody else's sermon. I'm preaching somebody else's sermon here today. And let me just begin by reading this. Verse 4. Abijah stood up uh, on Mount Zimmerim in the hill country of Ephraim and said, Hear me, Jeroboam, and all Israel. Ought you not to know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship of Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? But Jeroboam, verse 6 Uh, son of Nebat, a servant of Solomon, son of David, rose up and rebelled against his Lord, and worthless scoundrels followed him. Look at verse 8. And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hand of the sons of David, just because you're a great multitude, and you have with you the golden calves that Jeroboam made for your gods. You remember the golden calf incident with Moses? Jeroboam revived those idols. And he's loaded those idols, those gods, quote-unquote, onto wagons and brought the gods with them. But here's a clue. If you have to carry your god with you, I wouldn't depend on him too heavy. Well, he has to carry his god with him into battle. Verse 9, have you not driven out the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like people in any other land? Whoever comes for ordination with a young bull and seven rams becomes a priest. In other words, as uh, long as somebody shows up and they've got enough money and goods to trade it in, you'll ordain them as a priest. Anybody with money can be a priest. He says in verse 10, But as for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. We have priests ministering to the Lord who are sons of Aaron and Levites for their service. They offer to, verse 11, They offer to the Lord every morning and evening burnt offerings and incense and sweet spices. And look at verse 12. Behold, God is with us at our head, and his priests with their battle trumpets will sound the call to battle against you, O sons of Israel. Do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. Now, while Abijah is preaching this sermon, what is Jeroboam doing? Well, he's getting his soldiers and they are 
flanking the army of Abijah. He's going around behind Abijah's troops. So it says in verse 13, Jeroboam set an ambush around to come from behind. Thus his troops were in front of Judah, and an ambush was behind them. So now Abijah is not only outnumbered and outflanked, he is surrounded. So what do you do? Here is the question that I believe Abijah's story gives us an answer to. What do you do when the odds are against you? What do you do when you're outnumbered and outflanked and surrounded? (laughs) You can't run. You can't hide. You're probably going to lose in the fight. What do you do when the odds are against you? And here is uh, something I want to point out to you. It says, verse 14, Judah looked and behold, the battle was in front and behind them. And what did they do? They cried to the Lord. They cried to the Lord. This was no, this was no uh, red, uh, uh, boring prayer. This was desperate pleading before God. And it says, uh, verse 15, Then the men of Judah raised the battle shout, when the men of Judah shouted, God defeated Jeroboam and all of Israel before Abijah and Judah. God defeated them. And look at verse 16. And the men of Israel fled before Judah, and God gave them into their hand. So here's the, here's the point. And here's why I think this story is included. When the odds are against you, it doesn't matter if the odds are against you. What matters is, is God for you? Or maybe we should put it this way. Not if is God on your side, but are you on his side? Is God with you when the odds are against you? Because Abijah teaches us that it can be stacked against us, but it doesn't matter. I was uh, uh, delighted to hear this week, got a phone call from one of our young ladies who applied for a teaching position. She graduated uh, from college a year or two ago and uh, has been trying to get into the Genesee area the school district, especially in Flushing. And so she put in application to get into a, uh, there was an opening in the Flushing school district, and that was the one she wanted in, so she applied. I asked her if I could use this illustration. Uh, I'm not going to use her name, but I want to give you the story. So she put her application in, and we gathered, specifically I can remember, coming up here, kneeling at the couch out here in front of the fireplace and asking God to open that door. And I got a phone call this week. She said, I got the job. Now, what is interesting is there were 800 applicants to that one opening. Now, what do you do when the odds are against you? They cried to the Lord. I said to her, I said, what do you attribute this miracle? I mean, uh, were there no better qualified teachers? Is she from Harvard? No. She said, I attribute it to God. 
Now, so when the odds are against you, that's not the issue. Is God for you? What I want to do with the time that I have here, this sermon that Abijah preaches, and this uh, starts in verse 4 and goes through verse 12, I want to point out uh, five things that Abijah has, or five things Abijah knew that we need to know. Let me give you these. What did he have? What did he know? Abijah, in verse 4, stands up on Mount Zimmerim and says, Hear me, Jeroboam and all Israel. Verse 5. You ought to know that the Lord God of Israel gave gave the kingship forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt. Here's what Abijah knew. In looking when he was when the odds were against him, he knew he had a covenant. See, God made that covenant in 2 Samuel 7 with David and his seed or his descendants. Anyone who's in the line of David, God said, They'll be my sons, I'll be their father. And Abijah says, look, the people of, the the descendants of David, God gave us the kingship by a covenant, a covenant of salt. And and what is this covenant of salt? Well, it's interesting uh, um, that two or three cases uh, or instances in the Old Testament where when you came to God to renew your covenant with an offering. Leviticus 2.13 is an example. He says, season all your offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your, of your offerings. Add salt to all your offerings. Why is that? Well, because the offerings represented eating with God. When you eat together, which you would do at the end of a covenant ceremony, you always included salt. So sometimes a covenant was called a covenant of salt because it was celebrated and commemorated with a, with a, with a memorial supper. We, we still do it today when, when, uh, uh, when we have a wedding. What, do you, what follows the wedding ceremony? The covenant ceremony of, the covenant making ceremony of a wedding is always followed by the reception where you eat. And, and you use salt. In, the, in your eating. So he calls it a covenant of salt. And that's one of the things that is characteristic of God's Old or New Testament people, Old or New Covenant people, is that we eat. Speaking of teachers, one, one teacher said, uh, uh, tomorrow we're going to have uh, different religions represented. We're going to, so she asked a little Catholic girl to bring something to represent her religion. She asked a little Jewish boy to bring something to represent his religion. She asked a little Baptist boy to bring something to represent his religion. So the little girl came in the next day and she said, well, what did you bring? You're a Catholic. She said, I brought a picture of the Virgin Mary. And the little Jewish boy, the teacher said, what did you bring to show your religion? He said, I brought an emblem of the Star of David. And she had turned to the little Baptist boy and said, what did you bring to show your religion? He said, I brought a covered dish. (laughs) And, but... I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. 
And the reason that we are known often by our eating is because we are in a covenant and it's a happy occasion. Because we, we, re, we rely on the promises of God to us. Well, so he says, Abijah tells Jeroboam, he says, you know what? You don't, you're not in the covenant. We're in the covenant. We have a covenant from God that we celebrate with eating and with supper. A second thing he says that, that, uh, that he knew that he had, and this you'll find uh, there in uh, verse 8. Look at verse 8. He says, And now you think to withstand the kingdom of the Lord, which is in the hand of the sons of David, just because you're a great multitude. He says, you may have a big army. We got the kingdom. See, David's sons were kings. And those kings were rulers for God in the earth, beginning with David. It was the kingdom of God in the earth. And it was in Judah. And he says, you may have large numbers of military might and men, but we've got the kingdom of God. A third thing, look at verse 9. And also, have you not driven out, verse 9, the priests of the Lord, the sons of Aaron, the Levites, and made priests for yourselves like the people of other lands? He said, we've got the true priest." You've got a bunch of self-called, professed religion, leadership, who are not the genuine article. We have the priest who actually lead us to the true God. And that's, by the way, the mark of a true priest. He leads you to the true God. He says, but you have false priests who just buy their positions with rams and sheep and goats. But verse 10, As for us, the Lord is our God, and we have not forsaken him. We have priests who minister to the Lord who are the true sons of Aaron and Levites for that service. And then number four, he also knew that he had the sacrifices. Look at verse 11. They, and they offer to the Lord every morning and every evening burnt offerings. Let me uh, pause right here. When you read this same story, which is in 1 Kings 15, it tells you something about Abijah that it doesn't say here. Abijah, it says, did not have a perfect heart. It says Abijah had uh, failures and was not devoted to God like his great-grandfather David. In other words, Abijah was not a sinless man. He wasn't a perfect man. He was was something of a backslider with intermittent commitments. But But he understood not that he didn't have sins, but he did have a valid sacrifice for those sins. And he said, I don't come to you because I'm righteous. He says, but I do have a sacrifice and I can get my sins forgiven. 
because the lamb has been slain this morning by the true priest in the kingdom of God, which is given by covenant. Then a fifth thing is in verse 12. He says, And behold, God is with us at our head, and his priest with the battle trumpets to sound the call to battle against you, O sons of Israel. Do not fight against the Lord, the God of your fathers, for you cannot succeed. So if you have the covenant, and you have the kingdom, and you have the priesthood, and you have the sacrifice, and you have the Lord, then you have the victory. (laughs) And that is what happened. It says, and verse 15, and God defeated Jeroboam. Verse 16, and God gave them into their hand. And uh, look at verse 18. Let me read verse 18. Thus the men of Israel were subdued at that time, and the men of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord, the God of their fathers. Now there's a wonderful promise that's given in Psalm 18 and verse 50. It says something like this, God gives victory or deliverance to all the seed of David, all the, the house of David. If you are in the line of David, you are to have victory. It's not the odds against you, it's if God is for you. Are we? How do we get into the line of David? Where is the kingdom of David today? And let me give you Luke 1, verse 32 and 33. Now listen to this verse. This is where the angel comes to Mary and says to Mary and Joseph, who was of the house of David, and then says to Mary, Luke 1, 32, he will be great and be called the son of the Most High. See, that's what David's sons were called. They were called the sons of God, 2 Samuel 7, 14. He will be called, talking about Jesus, he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign and his kingdom will never end. Where's the kingdom today? Where's Judah today? Where do we go to get into the kingdom of David and the line of David so that when the odds are against us, God is for us? We go to Jesus Christ, the son of David, who's the son of God, the king, and in that kingdom, we have a covenant called the New Covenant, the New Testament, and we seek him, and we have our victory because we have covenant kingdom priest, the sacrifice, and we have the Lord. I think it matters. I think it matters a lot. And I came across this story when I was preparing this message about Hurricane Camille, which was a Category 5 hurricane back in August of 1969. Uh, It made landfall uh, and caused... I have down... 8,900 people were either killed or injured. Almost 300 actually killed in the flood. 19,000 homes destroyed. And the reason I remembered this is because there was a reporter telling this story of how uh, he lived through it. 
in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. He said the hurricane came in and we were in a more stable, secured, larger hotel. So we felt safe. And he said there was down the street a ways a small hotel. And a young lady knocked on their door uh, to get food or water or something for the night. And he, he said, I never will forget, I opened that door and there was this young mother with two little children huddled in her skirts. And the reporter said, I, I, I told her clearly, I said, you really should come in and stay with us tonight. She said, oh no, my husband's there. And he said that we're safe there. So they got what they needed and went back to the little motel. The next morning, he said the reporter talked about when he woke up from a fitful sleep and looked out the window and he said it looked like a bomb. It looked like Nagasaki or Hiroshima when the atom bomb had dropped. He said they, there was about two or three buildings still standing and theirs was one of them. That little hotel where the mother had gone with those two little children was not there. Totally removed. Washed away in the night. So far as he knew, they never found them. It matters where you go for refuge. It matters the king under which you seek protection. It matters. And I was putting this together and I read that. It doesn't matter as much... How large are your enemies? It matters what you trust in. And I'm going to bet that Abijah knew this verse. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots. Some in how many horses they have. But we will trust in the name of the Lord. He is our strength. David wrote that his great-grandfather. Abijah is a lesson for us today on where to put your trust when the odds are stacked against you. Put it in the covenant. Put your trust in the kingdom, in his priests, his sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow for prayer.